Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. Good morning. If you take your Bibles, please, and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is where we will start this morning. We've been in a series we've called Gospel Realization. And the idea behind the series is that How do we take the good news of Jesus that we all as Christians have believed, but make it something real, something that becomes a reality deep in our hearts? Because only then, only when that happens, does true, genuine change take place. When the gospel affects the heart is when godliness occurs. And so the New Testament writers We're always seeking to apply the gospel to motivate people to change to be like Jesus. They did not simply want the churches to be good for goodness sake. Being good for goodness sake may be good enough for old Saint Nick here in a few weeks. But it's not enough to experience life that God wants you to experience. Why do you change? How do you change? What is the motivation for, for those of you who are older, you know, my age and grew up listening to what we called CCM. You remember the song, Shine? I'm dating myself and getting all kinds of weird looks from the newsboys. Remember, remember, the, remember that dumb little line, the truth is in, the proof is when you hear your heart, you know the rest of it, start saying, what is my in my motivation. I'm like in the shower this morning singing the newsboys. I'm like, what is wrong with me? What is wrong with me? There is everything wrong with me. But it was just interesting that even back in those days, the, the idea is what is the motivation? What is the motivational structures of your heart? Because only when the gospel changes those motivational structures of your heart can you actually experience life that God has intended. And so we've been walking through what it looks like for um, what is the gospel. How does the story of the gospel work with the understanding of what God is doing in the world? And how does that work in our hearts and play itself out in our lives? And this morning what I want to do is look at several passages and just give you a rubric, give you a metric, give you a, a lens to look at how the New Testament writers actually encourage their people to change. And so the first you know, things I want to say are simply this. The fundamental problem in our efforts to overcome sin is choosing the wrong weapons to fight our sin. What weapons do, not that you believe, but what weapons do most Christians choose to fight their sin? What do you say? 
Self-improvement, moral fortitude, moral strength. Yeah, what else? Avoidance. Avoidance. Stay away from sin. Exactly. Count to ten. This is going to sound really bad, but memorize scripture, and every time you have a struggle, just pull out the card and start reading it. And are any of these things wrong, by the way? In fact, they might be really good helps. But none of them in and of themselves are necessarily going to deal with what we're actually dealing with, which is a problem in our heart. And so without a profound change in our hearts towards the gospel, we'll either continue in our evil or continue to perform acts of self-righteousness. So that even if you do change, and if it's not because of the gospel, we just turn into the older brother self-righteous people that we talked about several weeks ago. And so the New Testament always, in my opinion, seeks to apply the gospel when it comes to deep motivational structures of godliness. So what do I mean by that? Let's just jump in. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And the first thing we're going to talk about this morning is generosity. How do we become truly generous people? A primary way to know whether the gospel has actually dropped, the penny has dropped, and the grace of God has impacted your heart is to just measure your generosity. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, Paul says this, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given to the Macedonian churches. In the midst of very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people, and they exceeded our expectations. And they gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then, by the will of God, to us. Paul is talking to the church at Corinth here, and I don't know if you know anything about geography, but if you think of the nation today of Greece, the very southern part of Greece is where Corinth is. And in the biblical times, that region was called Achaia. The northern part of Greece was called Macedonia. And if you're familiar with Paul's missionary journeys of, you know, the church at Philippi, the Bereans, the Thessalonians, these were all those churches in northern Greece or called Macedonia. And when he was with them on their second missionary journey, he had just told them that he was taking up a collection for these poor saints in Jerusalem. They didn't ask them to give. They just heard about it. And as soon as they heard about the poor saints in Jerusalem where the gospel had originated and how they now have the gospel because they've supported Paul and all these people, they went out of their way to give. It's as if they were begging, please take my last penny and please give it to these poor saints in Jerusalem. And so Paul is telling the southern church, Corinth, Look at what the northern churches were doing. They were giving themselves to the Lord. They were waiting in line to give us money. Why? Because they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us. There was this commitment to the gospel that motivated their giving. Now, Paul obviously wanted the church at Corinth to give. He wanted them to complete the work. 
In fact, three times in these verses, in chapter 8, verse 6, and verse 11, we see this word complete being used, finish. And why? Because if you look in 1 Corinthians 16, I'm not going to go there, but just if you go there, 1 Corinthians 16, Paul begins the work of collecting for the saints in Jerusalem in Corinth. This wasn't a project for northern Greece. This was a project for Corinth. And so Paul said, every Sunday, set apart a sum of money so that when I come back in a year or so, every week you'll be adding to this pot, this collection. Now, Paul had not been able to go to Corinth. There's a lot of turbulence between Paul and the church at Corinth. Isn't that nice to know that church leaders didn't get along in the first century too? And they didn't always love each other and get along. It wasn't this perfect, ideal world. Okay, and so Paul sent Titus, and Titus heard that they may not have been giving and setting aside enough money, and then he found out that they were. And so Paul is now writing to say, guys, we started this work, and I want you to finish it. I want you to work at giving money to the church in Jerusalem. So Paul, I don't know. It doesn't seem like he's using a guilt trip. Like, look at those. You need to be like them. It seems like he's like, the other churches are super excited about this. There's unity across the churches from Jerusalem all the way to Greece. And you need to participate in this unity and show your love for all the saints by taking up this collection and finishing the work that you and I started back in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And if I was Paul... At this point, I would whip out my capital A apostle card and just say give. And I would actually say give this amount of your money. Why? I have authority. I have power. I could do that. People would do it. I'd get a lot of money to take to the saints in Jerusalem. I think that's how most people (laughs) are commanded to give. Just do it. But Paul, interestingly actually says in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I'm going to get these verses correct. He actually says, I am not going to command you. This is absolutely revolutionary when Paul says, I believe in verse uh, 10, that I'm not even going to command you to give. I'm not going to come with my authority and say, you need to give. But I want you to prove your earnestness. I want you to prove that your love for God is real. And so how does he motivate them? Look in verse 9. Paul says, and here's the motivation, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. How does Paul motivate the church? He gives them a snapshot of the gospel. That Jesus Christ gave up his riches. Now, I don't know which riches Paul is talking about. I have my own opinion. Some people think it's the riches of heaven and came down to earth. I actually think that there is better evidence that what Paul is actually saying is that Jesus actually gave up his uh, physical riches here on earth. Here's an early church historian, uh, a noted one, Rodney Stark, who says it appears that Jesus' parents, Mary and um, Joseph, obviously, occupied a prominent place in their community. They were sufficiently well off. They had property in Capernaum as well as Nazareth. They were able to go to Jerusalem every year. Remember when Jesus got lost in the temple? Who are the people that could go make that trip? 
People who actually had enough servants in the house who could leave their house alone for several weeks, a month at a time to travel, indicating that Jesus had wealth, that his parents had money. Jesus was trained in these Jewish uh, synagogues, which required money and privilege. These are things most families could not afford. So I'm not proving that Jesus was this millionaire family. But what I am saying is that Jesus had a wealthy background, a home where he could travel, go on vacations, get the best schooling. He could go to Norfolk Academy and go to the Bahamas and do all the things. And he gave all of that up since the middle of his ministry, he says, I have no place to lay my head. Can you imagine that type of life? And he did all of that for what reason? So that you and I might become rich. He did all of that. So that you and I, through his death and resurrection, could become heirs of the whole world, as Paul says in Romans chapter 4. It is as if the Corinthian church, if they really understood the riches that they possessed, because now they belong to Jesus... And they understood what it cost Jesus to provide them all the true riches that they now have. They would lose all fear of giving away any and all of their money. They wouldn't worry about losing their portfolios. They wouldn't be worried about the stock market. They wouldn't be worried about not getting their big house. They wouldn't be worried about not getting their new Apple Watch Ultra. They're not worried about any of that because their riches are now not determinative of their bank account, but of their union with Jesus. I often use this test case in my own heart and for other people to test your relationship to the gospel and generosity. If some poor person needed some money and came up to you and said, hey, I, I have no food, no money, and you have a one, ten, and a hundred dollar bill in your pocket, which one are you going to give them? If you're like me, which maybe you're not, and you're probably not, I'm not giving them the one dollar. Why not? That makes me feel like a cheapskate. I mean, you can't even buy a bottle of water anymore for a dollar. And I'm definitely not giving him the hundred. Why? What? Stop it. Right? But I mean, are you with me? So what are you going to give him? Maybe the ten and the one because you're feeling super generous. But what are the only differences between each one of those sheets of paper? The number of zeros on that sheet of paper, and I know, and the presidential picture. Oh, wait. The $100 bill isn't even a president, right? So, and the picture. Isn't it just crazy that a zero on a sheet of paper controls your heart? That's insanity. That's the power of sin at work in your life. And what frees you, and again, there's wisdom. You don't always have to give someone $100. Does that make sense? That's not what I'm going after. What I'm going after is what is the motivational structure of your heart. And it is not to give that 100 because there's two zeros on it. And it controls you. And what frees you from that control is to realize that I can give away all of my money right now. And you know what? I am still the richest person in the world. I am the heir of the entire world. I will rule and reign with Jesus. And so now I am free 
to give and be generous. Do you see how the gospel can actually free you? And I would say it this way, that Paul would say the degree to which the riches of Jesus are a reality in our hearts will be the degree to which we are generous people. You want to grow in your generosity, grow in your understanding and belief and and under this realization that God has given you everything in Jesus. He says in Romans chapter 8 that if he's given you Jesus, do you think he's not giving you anything else? He's already given you the greatest gift, the greatest treasure, the greatest riches. So when Paul wants to encourage the church at Corinth, a problem church, by the way, for him, he goes to the gospel. Well, he's not done with Corinth because example number two, I have like five mini sermons. I don't know how long this is going to go, but I got a nice new clock up there. Have you seen it? It's beautiful, and I can tell what time it is. Number two, how does Paul motivate for purity? The second way to know if the gospel has become a deep reality in your life is to measure how the gospel has changed your sexual ethic, your sexual purity. And the world is broken. You're broken. We're all broken when it comes to sin, and it doesn't mean that our sexual nature has not been impacted. In fact, all of us are broken sexual sinners in some way. You can't get around that. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is dealing with a church at Corinth who is also struggling with sexual immorality. And more than likely, it's what we would call temple prostitution. In the first century, what would happen, and if we talked a little, we talked a little about this in our sexual um, series, sexuality series a few months ago, is that it'd be very common for Roman men to actually have a wife and have sexual relations with her for the sake of his family. But then he would also go out on the side and get a prostitute or a slave or someone else for his own personal gratification. So it wasn't like the wife, like the husband was secretly hiding this from the wife. It was just common practice. And so the church at Corinth was the same thing, is that they were having this common practice of going and visiting temple prostitutes, that they'd have these feasts and these parties, and they'd bow down to idols and engage in sexual morality. And Paul wants to combat this sexual ethic in Corinth. And so it begins in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, by saying this, quoting the Corinthians, I have the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Quoting them again, I have the right to do anything, but Paul says, I'll not be mastered by anything. And the Corinthians say again, food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. But the body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. What is Paul doing? He's taking their rationale, their logic for why they are engaging in this temple prostitution. They're saying, I can do whatever I want. Sounds very 21st century American, right? It's not a new idea, it's been around for a long time. I can do whatever I want. I'm free. 
you know what? Paul's like, great, but not everything is beneficial. In fact, it's actually enslaving you. It's making you a slave to it. And it's making your life miserable. And then they say, well, food for the stomach and the stomach for the food, but God will destroy them both. What are they saying? The idea is this, is that sexual morality and food, which is often as temple idolatry with eating food offered to idols that he deals with in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He's combining them here, basically just saying these are both physical things. Eating food is a physical thing. Engaging in sexual morality is a physical thing. But you know what the goal is? When we die, we're going to separate from our body, and where are we going to go? Up to heaven. So the only thing that matters is what? The spiritual. What happens on the inside? The physical doesn't matter. It doesn't have any indication for the future. So because the only thing that matters is the future, and that's the spirit and getting away from our body, they reason they could do whatever they wanted right now with their body. Does that sound anything like 21st century American Christianity? We're going up to float up in heaven forever? We do say don't give in to temple prostitution, though. But the idea is still the same. And Paul has to come and, you know, in a sense, rebuke them for their wrong theology. Paul actually begins to go on and say a lot more about this. And I'm just, because for the sake of time, going to skim through this. And you can research it more on your own if you want or talk to me about it. But Paul is going to go into these realities and say, no, God raised Jesus from the dead. Guess what he's going to do for you? Raise you from the dead so that your body matters. And the body wasn't made just for food and sexual morality. It was made for the Lord in the sense that we actually fellowship and have intimacy and relationship with God in and through our body, not just our spirits. So to make this dichotomy, to make this separation that you can do whatever you want with your body because the only thing that matters is the spirit and the soul is to actually misunderstand what God wants and what God designed you for because we were meant to experience and have the presence of God with us in our bodies. And so Paul will then ask these three questions, three rhetorical questions. How many of you hate when your wife asks you, spouse asks you a rhetorical question? Does that happen to you a lot? And you're just like, why do we hate rhetorical questions? One, they make you feel stupid. But two, it, if you dig a little bit deeper into it, not just makes you feel stupid, it makes you remember and remind yourself of what you're actually talking about. And it brings this consternation, like this, this anger inside of us that this is really true. And so asking rhetorical questions is like a, a, a device to help us consider what we're actually talking about. And Paul says, don't you know that you are members of Christ himself? In fact, three times he's going to use this phrase, Members. And if you know that you are a member of the body of Christ, shall I take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? And in the strongest Greek way, he says, never, God forbid, may it never be. So don't you know that the one who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in her body? What is Paul saying? Simply this. 
if you've been united to the living Christ, he's united to your body, soul, and spirit. How can you then unite yourself with a prostitute? You are looking in the prostitute for what only union with Jesus can actually give you. And if you understood the deep realities being united to Jesus, being in him, having everything that Jesus has, you now have, you will keep yourself from being united to a temple prostitute. So you know why you're a broken sexual sinner? Not because you don't have enough moral strength, not because you're just a bad, depraved sinner. It's because you don't believe your union with Jesus for what it really is. So that I would say it this way, the degree to which we experience and realize our union with Christ will be the degree to which we flee sexual immorality. 1 John chapter 4. Example number 3, love. Love may be the most central tenet of Christianity. We're called to love God above all else, and we demonstrate that love for God through loving our neighbor. However, the power of sin in our life destroys genuine love. Do you realize every time you sin, you're acting not in love towards your neighbor? How many of you struggle to love people genuinely? How many, I mean, that's the, all the issues in every church, in every relationship, in every family as a lack of genuine love. And so how do you become people who love more? John gives us a little hint in 1 John chapter 4. It says, dear friends, and there's a little jingle that I learned as a kid, and I'm not singing it for you, but there is a little song that goes with us. Let us love one another. Why? Because love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God, and whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So dear friends, since God has loved us, we ought to love one another. John grounds his desire for you and me to love one another, first off, in the source of love. Where does love come from? The fountainhead of all love does not start with us, but it starts with God. He is the one who exists in a loving relationship that that love now has been sent to us. And if you love, it's a demonstration that you've been born of God. If you love, it's a demonstration like in Nicodemus chapter 3 when John uses the illustration of Jesus saying, you must be born again. What does it mean to be born again? Nicodemus is like, do I have to climb back into my mom's womb? Can you imagine asking Jesus that question? You must be completely lost. But I think what... Jesus and Nicodemus having a conversation about is just as you were born of a woman into Adam's world, you must be born again into God's new world. You must experience two births, a birth into the world that is currently existing, that is coming to an end. But if you want to come into God's new world, God's kingdom, you have to experience a new birth. 
that he'll say in first sorry in John chapter 3 verse 5 that is a birth not by a woman but by the spirit of God who brings this new birth to you and if you've experienced this new birth you are a person who loves why because this new world that you've been birthed into is God's world and he permeates that world with love so that if you live in this world what do you have to do you have to be a person who loves So John says, let us love one another because God has given us love and he is love and he's brought us into his new realm where love actually exists. But then he says this, this is how we know God loves us. We can talk about all of that and, you know, God is love and God is over here and if we live with him, we have love. But how do we know that God actually loves This is the love God showed to us. He sent his one and only son, his unique son, into the world that we might live through him. God doesn't just say he loves you. He demonstrated his love for you. God's love for you motivated his sending of his son And the purpose of God's missional incarnation, the person of Jesus, is to bring life through his atoning sacrifice. God did not just send Jesus to live among us so that he could experience our pain. He sent him to live among us to actually go through the death and the resurrection so that you and I might actually experience life. This is how much God loves you. He wants you to have life. The Greek word here for atoning sacrifice is a little bit debated, and it has two ideas that theologians fight over all the time. I'll give you both of them. One means we use a theological word called expiation. It's the removal of guilt, and it makes every individual, every sinner pure and purified so there's one idea of like expiation, like you're, the, the, the sin is removed away from you, it's expatiated, it's away from you. But there's another word, another big theological word, not expiation, but propitiation. Propitiation is a big word that means that it's the satisfaction of God's wrath. That in a sense, there is a, a wrath of God hanging over everyone's head. And you will experience the full wrath of God when he comes back and actually sends you and banishes you from his eternal kingdom. And that will be the wrath of God upon all people. And yet God sent Jesus to actually remove that guilt and to remove that wrath from you so that now you can actually have life and not death. And so John then says, dear friends, Let's love one another. What's his motivation for loving? It is the realization of the love of God for you to send his only son to take care of all of your wrath, to take care of all of your sin, to take upon himself all the hell and the separation from God so that you will never have to experience any of that. And now you actually have life in this new eternal kingdom where all you will ever experience is the love that God has for you. And when that penny drops, what is the only way you can treat other people? Lovingly. The degree, 
to which the love of God has been realized in our hearts will be the degree to which we love one another. Are you getting the pattern? Are you getting the way that the New Testament writers motivate us to change? Number four, humility. This is in Philippians chapter two. These words are crazy. These are just crazy. Like we read it and it's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But think, don't do anything out of selfish ambition. Okay, that's enough. How many of you today are acting out of selfish ambition? And it's 11 o'clock and you've been at church. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Don't look out for your own interests, but look out for the interests of others. Okay, this is just like, Paul, this is ridiculous. You don't understand my life. You don't, have the, you don't know the dreams, the ambitions, what I want. It's about me. And Paul actually says, no, be humble. Be humble. Humility is the trick of all tricks, because once you got it, you don't, right? But how do you really grow in humility? Does Paul just lay down the law here and guys, 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 come on. We're a church. Get along. Be kind. Just be humble. Stop looking out for your own interests, but, you know, look out for their interests. Help them. Let's just get along. Like, is that what Paul wants? Be good for goodness sake? I think we have been theologized by Christmas far more than we believe. Rather than the true incarnation, which is what Paul always grounds his theology and his motivation for for change. How do I know that? Because the very next verses in Philippians chapter 2. I do not have on the screen for you. I should have them on them for you, but I'm going to open up my Bible. Philippians chapter 2, Paul grounds his motivation in a hymn, in a song that the early church sang about Jesus that you are all very familiar with, most likely. He says this, Have this mind in you which was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, Just stop for a second. He didn't take advantage of his position. He was equal with God and he came down to earth. One commentator said, when was the last time you ever studied any of the Roman emperors like Nero and Caligula or any of the Roman gods or Greek gods who had all this power and willingly gave it all up? There's no God like Jesus. There's no God who came down, had authority and power, and willingly gave it all up. He did not count his equality with God as something to be grasped. But what did he do? He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. When it says he emptied himself, John Kelvin says he didn't empty himself of his divinity, he emptied himself of his glory. He was still God concealed in a human servant form. So he came with all this power and willingly laid it down. But he also took the form of a man. And I don't know that we often think about this, but this form of a man was not for 33 years. When Jesus comes back, he's coming back as a man. When he establishes the eternal kingdom, he will live in that eternal kingdom as a 
man. He permanently took on the form of a man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You want to think about putting others' interests before yours? What did Jesus do for you? The powerful God of the universe comes on and takes the form of a servant for all of eternity, only to be crucified and put to death by people that he made. Why? Because he had your interests ahead of his own. You know why you don't know how to put other people's interests before your own? Because you haven't ever realized how much Jesus has actually put his interests, your interests, ahead of his. But Jesus will be that king of power. Because God has, through this sacrificial death and resurrection, exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Okay? In heaven and on earth. Every demonic, every angel, every seraphim, every invisible reality that we cannot see will bow their knee to Jesus. Every king, every president, every Caesar, every individual, everyone in this room will bow your knee to Jesus. That is what God has declared through the resurrection of Jesus. The question is, will you do it humbly and receive eternal life? Or will he force you to do it and send you away? But the degree to which we see Jesus looking after our own interests before his own will be the degree to which we do the same for others. You getting the picture? You ready? One more, just a quick one. It's my favorite one. I saved it for last. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, oh my goodness, I had that whole thing on the screen. What an idiot. I'm such an idiot. I'm allowed to say that. Here he says in Ephesians chapter 4, get rid of bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, every form of malice. That's all the negative to get rid of. And be positively kind, compassionate, forgiving, tenderhearted towards one another. Do you struggle being kind to people? You ever stop and realize who the people you struggle being kind to are? You ever wonder why the, the people you get the maddest at are your own family? The people you love the most are the ones you get the most mad at? You ever realize that? You know why? Those are the people you spend the most time with. The more time you spend with people, the more annoying they become. The more they sin against you. The more they hate you. The more they slander about you. The more they talk about you. You know why you don't like deep relationships? Because you just, they're not worth it. Because it, it just ends up getting a mess. So Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another. Uh, this, this is going to sound very mean. But like for me too. Congratulations, church. We've all been very kind to each other this morning. I hope. So <laughs> we're good. Why did Paul have to write this to this church? 
They had such deep, intimate relationships that there was actually conflict. I actually tell Nate when there's like conflict going in in our church, I'm like, this is exciting. (laughs) I like the conflict in the sense that it means people are actually getting mad at each other. But getting mad at each other demands relationship. It demands then working on repentance and forgiveness and being kind to one another. And Paul tells this church, and you got to think about it this way. It's like, it's very weird. Like, if we're the only 60 Christians in all of Hampton Roads, I think our lives would look a lot different. And there's only 60 people in this church, and they're all living their life together, trying to figure it out, and all the other things going on. And he tells this church to be kind, to be compassionate, to forgive. But what is the motivation for all of that? Be kind for kindness sake. Now, he actually says that very last verse, be kind and compassionate, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has what? Forgiven you. You know why you're not kind to people? You've never understood the reality of the kindness of God to you. You know why you have a struggle forgiving other people? It's because you haven't understood the forgiveness that God has actually granted to you personally. Which is why Jesus says, if you don't forgive others, the Father will never forgive you. Because you can never understand your own forgiveness if you can't forgive others. You know why you're not a compassionate soul? You're an angry Northeasterner like me? Because that's our identity up there. No, it's because... I don't understand how compassionate God is to me in Jesus. It's almost as if, again, the degree to which we see Jesus' forgiveness and kindness towards us will be the degree to which we forgive others. What are we saying in this series? We're saying to make the gospel reality so that we can be a church that actually exemplifies the new world of the ethic and the love and the purity and the humility and the kindness and the forgiveness is going to require us doing business, not with just platitudes, not doing business with just like, all right, leave me alone, let me do this and just forgive her and let me go on living my life and never have to talk to her again. We're going to have to do business with the fact that God in the person of Jesus has come to rescue and restore and to bring you into his new world. And the more that we think on that, the more that that captures us, the more that it becomes real in our lives together, the more we will actually be a true kingdom community. So Father, help us to be this people who put our trust and hope not in our own goodness, our own righteousness, not in our own strength, but people that come to see the beauty of what God, you have done for us in Jesus. That you have been truly generous towards us in Jesus. That you have united us to live in Christ where there is true intimacy and true fellowship and true joy. And you've caused us to experience your love because of the atoning work of Jesus on our behalf. 
And we've seen the humility of Jesus of taking on the form of a servant and emptying himself of his power and his deity to be crucified, to be mocked, to be beaten for us. And that he has forgiven us and been compassionate to us, been kind to us. So may the gospel become a deeper reality in our hearts, not just a set of beliefs that we believe to become a Christian, but the operating system of our hearts to change us, to be like you, so that we would experience life for those people who do not know Jesus, who have not experienced his life yet. So, Father, we pray against Satan. We pray against his devices and his tactics. We pray, Spirit, that you'll empower us to be this people. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.